If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we're going to be in the entire chapter, so all 23 verses. And the title of today's lesson is God's Providence. God's Providence. So if you're able, please stand with me. If you have your Bibles, please read along as I read out loud. 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you be grieving over Saul? For I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I see among his kings or his sons a king for me. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear of it and will kill me. Then Yahweh said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will make you know what you should do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I say to you. So Saul did what Yahweh said and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Set yourselves apart as holy and come with me to the sacrifice. He also set apart Jesse and his sons as holy and invited them to the sacrifice. Now it happened when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the anointed of Yahweh is before him. But Yahweh said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Yahweh has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Yahweh has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the young men? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is shepherding the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not turn around until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes, and a handsome appearance. And Yahweh said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from Yahweh terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now speak to your servants who are before you, and let them seek a man who is a skillful musician on the harp. And it shall be that when the evil spirit from God is on you, he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well, and bring him to me. Then one of the young men answered and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skilled musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one who is understanding in speech, and a man of fine form, and Yahweh is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a wineskin of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David, his son. Then David came to Saul and stood before him. 
and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. So Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And thus it happened that whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Please be seated. Well, if you were to type the words John Piper's magnum opus on Google today, the top 12 entries unanimously affirms that John Piper's most important written work is a 750-page book published in 2021 on God's providence, aptly named Providence. And I think one of the reasons this is true is that one of the most precious truths about God is his providence. And the central theme in today's Bible passage is God's providence. So today we're going to learn first what divine providence is, and second, how God's providence can instill fear, comfort, and courage to all of us here in this room. And we're going to organize chapter 16 as follows. So first, God's providence is introduced in verse 1. His providence is revealed in verse 2 to 5. His providence is transcendent, verses 6 to 12. His providence is spirit-powered, verse 13 and 14. His providence is enabling, verse 15 to 18. And God's providence is disruptive, verses 19 to 23. Well, again, if you have your Bibles or your phones, turn back with me, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and let's jump into verse 1. But even before we read the first verse, a bit of time has now elapsed between the end of chapter 15 and verse 1 of chapter 16. So after Saul's failure and Samuel taking acts into his own hands and hacking Agog into pieces, we see here in verse 1 that Samuel remains distraught, right? He continues to mourn and to grieve over Saul's disobedience and his failure. And it's here we see that God still reaffirms his rejection of Saul. So it says here in verse 1, Yahweh says to Samuel, How long will you be grieving over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. But by saying this, what God is telling Samuel is that even though you are distraught, you are in mourning and grieving, that as God, God is still in control. Everything is under the control of his mighty hand, his sovereign reign. And so God now commands Samuel to get himself ready to anoint another man as king. Fill your horn with oil and go and I will send you to Jesse the Benjaminite. Now notice what he says. Fill your, oil, your, your horn with oil, go, and I am sending you to Bethlehem to meet a man named Jesse. Now, just again, a little bit of reminder. Jesse, as we learn from the book of Ruth, he is the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. And he comes from the descendant of Judah and Tamar from the tribe of Judah. And you may recall that in Genesis chapter 49, that God had promised that the royal king, the, the patriarchal blessing, was going to come through the tribe of Judah. Now, Bethlehem during this time 
is an obscure little town. It's about five miles south of Jerusalem. And for Samuel to get to Bethlehem, he would have to go from his town of Ramah through Gibeah, which is where King Saul is, to go down to Bethlehem. So you can see that, that Samuel would be obviously afraid of what Saul would do if he would pass through Gibeah where Saul was to go down to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. But I want you to focus your attention on the end of verse one. Let me read it again. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I see among his sons a king for me. Some of your English Bibles might read, I have provided for myself a king. I have chosen one of his sons to be king, or I have selected for myself a king. But this verb that in some of your English Bibles that's translated provided, chosen, selected, it comes from a Hebrew verb that literally means to see, to see. And I think that this is important because this verb to see is a foundational word that helps us understand the doctrine of God's providence. So let me explain. Some of you may believe in the Trinity, that God is not just uh, one, but he is three in persons. But if you look at your English Bible, it would be hard for you to find the word Trinity in your English Bible. And it's the same way with the word providence. If you look in your English Bible, if you have an ESV, a Christian Standard Bible, or certainly the King James Version, you will not find the English word providence in, in those Bibles. In fact, in the NIV, you will find the word providence once in Job chapter 10, verse 12. We get the word, the English word providence from two Latin roots. Pro, which means uh, one of the things is forward, all right? Like to see forward. And a video or V-day where we get the, the meaning to see. So literally providence, uh, you might say at least from the two Latin roots means to see forward. But that's not what the English word providence means today. The, the English word providence today has a meaning of to, to supply what is needed, right? To act purposefully to provide for, to sustain, and to govern. But we have an English idiom, I will see to it, right? Some of you probably don't use it now, but if someone were to say, I will see to it, what is that person saying? That person is basically saying that when I'll see to it, it means I'll take care of it. I'll provide for it. I'll make sure that it happens. And this concept or this notion is emphasized and clarified back in Genesis chapter 22. You remember the story in Genesis chapter 22. That is the chapter when God asked Abraham to bring his one son Isaac up to Mount Moriah to bind him and to offer him as a sacrifice to God. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 7 and 8, it reads, Then Isaac, he speaks to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself. 
It's the same Hebrew word to see. God will see to it for himself, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide, Jehovah Jireh. Again, the same Hebrew root that means to see. Yahweh will see to it. So whenever you see the word provide in Genesis 22 in your English Bible, it actually comes from the Hebrew verb meaning to see. But here's the important concept. You see, when God sees, his sight is much different than us when we see, right? With your two eyes, if you were to, to, to drive to the Grand Canyon or to Yosemite National Park or to Yellowstone National Park and you get out of your car, you can see the splendor of the creation before your midst. But when you see, you are a passive observer. Nothing happens to the object of your sight. You are just taking in passively what you see. But when God sees, he is never a passive observant. He is always an active participant. So when Yahweh sees, when God sees, he is orchestrating everything that is before his eyes. So whenever God sees, he will see to it. He will make sure that it happens. And it's God's sight, his perception that implies his provision and his providence. You see, when you and I meditate on this idea of God's providence, it becomes a most comforting doctrine. See, God's providence, it, it automatically should cast out all fear and doubt. I say a lot of times, it's one thing to believe that God is all-powerful, that he can do everything or anything that he wants. It's yet another thing to say that God is sovereign, that he rules over all, including his creative universe. But it's even more comforting and emboldening to know that God is sovereign for a good purpose. Sovereignty for a good purpose is what we mean when we say God's providence. So God's providence has no bounds. And it's to the point where, as we know, that to provide for Abraham and Isaac, to provide for you and me, he did not spare his own son to provide for us, to give us provision this is God's providence. So we see in verse 1, when, when we see that I see among his sons a king for me, this is an introduction to God's providence. But let's look further. Not only do we see it introduced, we see that God's providence is revealed. Now, in the idea of God's providence being revealed, he doesn't instantaneously reveal his plan and his providence to us, right? He reveals his plan and his providence a little bit at a time, progressively. And let's see how God reveals his providence in these next few verses. First, he reveals it through prayer. Look at verse two. It says that Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear of it and will kill me. So Samuel is basically in a sense, talking with God, praying to God and saying, how is this going to happen, God? And so Samuel, fearing for his life, he prays to God and God answers Samuel's question. And he says, take a heifer with you and say, I will come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Now, do you guys know what a heifer is? 
a heifer is basically a word that refers to a young female cow that has not yet had a calf. So think of it as a female cow that has not had baby calves yet. Now, why is this important? Well, the reason why this is important is because if you read in the book of Leviticus that male cows are offered for burnt offerings, for sin offerings. So a female cow, a heifer, is only appropriate and suitable for a peace offering, right? And what is a peace offering? Sometimes also referred to as a fellowship offering. It is an offering that is given when you are solemnly praying, when a prayer has been answered, when there's a prayer of thanksgiving. And so, so what God is saying is that if you bring a heifer, it will show that your, your reason for coming is not to offer some sort of sacrifice because of sin, out of obligation, but you are preparing a fellowship offering, something that everyone can join in and enjoy the meal together. So we see here that God's providence, it's revealed in this case to Samuel through prayer. It's revealed uh, secondly, through progression. Look at verse three. Uh, and you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will make you know what you shall do. Do you, do you see the future tense here? What God is saying? I will make you know. He doesn't give Samuel all the information. He's telling Samuel, you obey. And when the time comes, I will let you know what to do. God's revelation comes in stages. It's progressive. We often refer to even the Bible from Genesis to Revelation as God's progressive revelation. We don't expect God to give us all the answers today. So God's providence is revealed through prayer, through progression. And thirdly, God's providence is revealed in his word. Look at verse three again. I will make you know what you shall do and you shall anoint for me the one whom I say to you. Whom I say to you. So God's providence is revealed by his words. What I say to you. Now, God doesn't speak to you and I today with an audible voice. It's not like we go home at night and, you know, everything's quiet and we're praying, looking to hear God's voice. So how do we hear God's voice? Well, it's through his word, right? It's through the Bible. Do you remember what Peter says in the Bible? In 2 Peter, and this is near the end of Peter's life, Peter writes something that is quite fascinating. Peter writes, For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So what is Peter writing here? What Peter is saying to the readers, to us, is that I was there. I saw Jesus transfigured, that he revealed himself on the mountain to his full glory, and I saw the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ on that mountain. And even though I saw all of Christ's glory at the transfiguration, none of you did, you have something even more sure. And what's more sure is the prophetic word that is Holy Scripture. So even though Peter was an eyewitness to the transfiguration, he's telling us that the more solid proof that we have, that's more reliable even, then the spectacular experience of witnessing Christ's transfiguration is the word. So God's providence is revealed to us through prayer. It's revealed progressively. 
It's revealed through his word. Well, third, let's look at how God's providence is transcendent. God's providence is transcendent. And what we mean by the word transcendent is that God's providence, the providence of God, it's unlike any thought or plans of ordinary men. Look down at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Now it happened when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the anointed of Yahweh is before him. And interesting, when you look at verse 6, when it says, he looked, it's the same Hebrew verb, ra'ah, to see, back in verse 1. And you're understanding that, so Saul, or Samuel, he is seeing, but his sight is different than God's sight in verse 1. Now understand here, Samuel is a godly man. He is perhaps the greatest judge in all of Israel's history. He is God's faithful prophet and priest. And furthermore, this is toward the end of Samuel's life. Samuel has a lot of experience. He has seen the life of Eli. He has seen how King Saul had lived. If anyone should be a good judge of character, who would make a great leader? It should be Samuel. But, but what, it, what we see here is that Samuel takes one look at Eliab and thought, surely the anointed of Yahweh is before him. But look at the contrast at how God's providence is transcendent in verse 7. But Yahweh said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. The Hebrew verb to see is mentioned here in these two verses four times. God sees not as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance. Yahweh sees, looks at the heart. We understand this to be true, right? We, we, we look at the external appearances, physical appearance, your financial wealth, your worldly accomplishments, but that's not how God sees. God looks at the heart. And you remember as we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel, that heart in the Hebrew thought refers to the entire inner self, one's will, one's thoughts. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, um, it writes or it reads, for the eyes of Yahweh, so you get this? The eyes of Yahweh, that God will see to it. It moves to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is wholly devoted to him. So again, when God sees, he's not passive, he's active. And his providence, unlike man, involves looking at the heart of man. And so I think the application to us is this, that while we see the externals, like even what's happening in the Middle East right now, what we can only see is what we can hear, read, touch. But, but God looks at the heart. You know, there's one pastor, H.B. Charles, he writes that the people we should lead should notice our godliness more than our gifts. So often when we look for leaders, you know, the next leader evaluating our current leader, we look so often at the externals, don't we? How successful this person is, how much influence, how much fruit. But God looks at the heart. So God's providence introduced, revealed, transcendent. Fourth, God's providence is spirit-empowered. 
So more importantly, God's providence proceeds through the Holy Spirit's empowerment. Now, let me think with me for a minute. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he is given many names in the Bible, right? He is called the Adam, that is the last Adam, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. He is called the advocate, Jesus is, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He is called Almighty, Alpha and the Omega, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. He's actually called Amen, Revelation chapter 3, or verse 14. He is called the Apostle of our Confession, Hebrews chapter 3. And he's called the Arm of Yahweh, Isaiah 51, verse 9. I just gave you seven names for Jesus that begins with the letter A. Imagine if we go all the way to Z. There are hundreds of names attributed to the second person of the Trinity. But the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is given primarily three names. Spirit of God, which is Spirit of Elohim, Spirit of Yahweh, so whenever you read in your English Bible, Spirit of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Spirit of Yahweh. And third, the Holy Spirit, all right, or Spirit that is holy. So if you look here now in verse 13, you now see one of the names of the Holy Spirit here in the Old Testament. And read what it says that after Samuel anointed David, it says, the spirit of the Lord or the spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from that day forward. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. And in the Old Testament, the bestowal of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is God's power dispensed to an individual for a particular task. And this expression, the spirit of Yahweh coming or rushing upon an individual, it only occurs in the Old Testament in the book of Judges and in the book of 1 Samuel. And it was used to describe the spirit's power coming upon Samson, Saul, and now David. For example, in Judges chapter 14, I'll just read it. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily so that Samson tore it as one tears a young goat. Then the spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily and he went down to Ascalon and struck down 30 of them. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily so that the ropes that were on his arm were as flax that is burned with fire and his bonds dropped from his hands. The spirit of Yahweh also rushed upon Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, it reads, The spirit of Yahweh will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And now it happened that all who knew Saul previously saw and beheld, behold, he was prophesying with the prophets. And so the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So you see that when the spirit of Yahweh comes upon, rushes upon, empowers Saul, he was transformed to another person. He was able to prophesy along with God's prophets. And now here in verse 13, Samuel takes the horn of oil, anoints David in the midst of all his brothers, and it reads, the spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from that day forward. But there's an important difference between this event of the Spirit and the first two. Because the first two times, the presence of the Spirit of Yahweh was temporary. But for David, from that day forward, it implies that this time around, it was permanent. Is it no wonder that David pled with God in Psalm chapter 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. 
He pled with God, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. So throughout human history, the providence of God has always been Spirit-empowered. And think with me how God's Holy Spirit empowers us today. I mean, for one, the Holy Spirit is involved in the inspiration of all the biblical writers, including the Old Testament writers. Remember in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, Know this first of all. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. No prophecy has ever been made by the will of man. But what? Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So what Peter is saying is that the entire Bible, including all 39 books of the Old Testament, were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So all the biblical authors were empowered by the Holy Spirit. We just learned earlier in this morning's Sunday sermon that the Holy Spirit, yes, God the Father and God the Son too, but the Holy Spirit is involved in our salvation in the regeneration of every single man, right? Titus 3.5, it says that God saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's also involved now, even today, teaching us and guiding us. Jesus says in John chapter 14, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Jesus again says in John chapter 16, but when he, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. So uh, we are Spirit-empowered through the inspiration of Scripture. That's through the, the inspiration by the Holy Spirit. Our salvation, being born again, regenerated, that's through the Holy Spirit. And even today, what we are taught, what we learn, how we are guided, that is all through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it should give us both comfort and a spirit of dependence that we need to come to God and ask for the Spirit's power in our lives so we can live a life being led by God's Spirit. And in fact, one of the reasons we can gather together today, we're of different people groups, different ages, but we all have one Spirit the same Holy Spirit, the same Spirit of Yahweh. All right, so we've got providence introduced, revealed, transcendent, spirit-powered. Or fifthly, let's look at providence being enabling. Look at verse 17. So the Spirit of Yahweh leaves Saul, and Saul is plagued with an evil spirit. So Saul, in verse 17, he says to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. That verb, provide for me, again, the Hebrew verb to see. See to it for me. Find me. Provide for me. Make it happen for me. So what Saul is pleading is that because the spirit of Yahweh has left him, he doesn't have any provision. He is pleading, begging for God's providence. But because the spirit of Yahweh has left him, he has nowhere to go. So he goes to his servants and he says, provide for me. I can't go to Yahweh anymore. Yahweh's left me. So I've got you. Find me. See to it for me. Provide for me a man who can play well. And then verse 18 then one of the young men answered and said, Behold, I have seen a son. The seventh time this verb, to see. Right? I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, skillful musician, mighty man of valor, a warrior, one who is understanding in speech, made a man of fine form, and Yahweh is with him. I love R.C.'s description or commentary on this verse. 
R.C. Sproul would say that Alexander the Great got his title for being a great general. But if anyone is deserving of the title the Great, it, it should have been King David. Because think with me, when you read verse 18, every mother would wish their, their son could be the man in verse 18, right? Look at this. This man is a skilled musician, literally knowing and playing. And the verb to know implies a deep and intimate familiarity. Skilled musician. Second, he's a mighty man of valor. So he's a valiant man, a brave man, a courageous man, and has the notion of strength and power. This man is a warrior. He's a man of war. He's a good fighter. So not only is he strong, but he knows how to win. Any conflict, military, uh, even you know, a, a, a verbal argument, he's a, he's a fighter. He's a warrior. Fourthly, he's, he's understanding in speech. He's prudent in speech. He speaks well. He has good judgment. And the emphasis here is not so much that he was just an eloquent speaker, but rather that David's speech was perceptive. It was sensible. It was wise. Uh, there are a few kids and I that are studying Western philosophy or the history of Western philosophy and we're studying about the sophists. And the sophists lived in the time of, of Socrates. And what we were learning is that these sophists, they didn't have any truth. But what they had was eloquent rhetoric to be able to draw crowds and to get money as professional teachers. So David wasn't just a sophist. His speech was wise. It was insightful, persuasive. Fifthly, David was a man of fine form. He was handsome. He was good-looking. He's dignified. He presents himself well. Maybe a modern uh, notion is that he looked sharp, right? But then look at the final description. Yahweh was with him. Yahweh was with him. So why... Why say that David is great? Well, he's all these things, but the recipe for greatness is that God, the Lord, Yahweh, was with him. Later in chapter 18, it says that Saul was afraid of David, for Yahweh was with him. David was prospering in all his ways, and Yahweh was with him. For us today, look up. Every single skill, every single talent, every single ability that you have comes and is enabled by God through the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you what it says in Exodus chapter 35. Listen closely. And God has filled him with the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, in wisdom discernment, knowledge, and get this, and in all craftsmanship to devise designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood so as to do well in every work of thoughtful design. He has filled them with wisdom in his heart to do every work of an engraver, of a designer, and an embroiderer. You see, the Holy Spirit's enablement is not just the spiritual gifts we sometimes think of in terms of just like mercy ministry or teaching ministry. Everything that you do, woodworking, carpentry, tent making, computer programming, cooking, baking, all of these abilities that you have, believe it or not, according to Scripture, is enabled by God through the Holy Spirit. So your musicianship, your health and your physical strength, your ability to win, your wisdom in persuading others, your good appearance, 
your reputation before others. This is all enabled by God's providence through the spirit of Yahweh. But the converse is also true. If you feel like you're lacking, you don't have certain skills. You're weak. You lose more often than not. You're not able to speak and persuade others. You don't have a good reputation. You never were given physical beauty. And you were never looked upon well by others. That, too, is God's providence. God says in Psalm 84, verse 11, no good thing does God withhold from those who walk blamelessly. Your set of circumstances today, not only was it not an accident, for sure it was no mistake. God didn't forget about you. God didn't neglect you. God didn't withhold anything good from you. He's omniscient, omnipotent. He's full control. He is sovereign. He reigns over all. And he's sovereign with a good purpose. So meditate on this truth. Savor it. Cherish it. Let me give you a sixth point here. Providence is disruptive. Providence is disruptive. Look at verse 19. Saul sends messengers, a uh, message to Jesse and says, send me your son David, who is with the, with the flock. So what Saul does is he hears about this great man, David, and he summons David and his father must comply because you always have to comply to the king. And so without any advance notice, the youngest son of Jesse leaves his father and family. Verse 20, Jesse takes a donkey loaded with bread, wine, a young goat, sends them to Saul by David, his son. Now, some might think this might have been a tax, a required payment, maybe a gift. And then look at verse 21. Saul loved David greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And during this time, an armor bearer was perhaps one of the closest personal attendants to the king. There are few people that are closer to the king than his armor bearer during this time. So Saul said to Jesse saying, let David now stand before me for he has found favor in my sight. And so we quickly see Saul's request for David is not just a weekend event. David's commission to service becomes a permanent assignment. So we see that once the spirit of Yahweh rushes into David, his life is forever changed. It is it, it deviates. It, 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 in some ways, it shatters. It's disruptive. David's life will never be the same again. He had the comfortable life of just, you know, shepherding the flock. No one even knows he's around. And now he's going to be thrust for the rest of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel to the roller coaster of his life. And do you know that the Spirit of God, I would go so far as to say, always works in this way? The Spirit of God actually disrupted the life of the second person of the Trinity. Remember, our Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Yes, there was the, the slaughter of all the male children under two, but eventually they settled in Nazareth. But to the best of our knowledge, our Lord Jesus Christ lived a fairly ordinary life for perhaps 30 years. And then what happens? He gets baptized, that is Jesus, by, by John the Baptist. And in Matthew it reads, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately 
from the water. And behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And do you know what happens next? If you read the next chapter, immediately Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was the Holy Spirit that actually led Jesus to the temptation in the wilderness by Satan. So be prepared to be surprised, Christian. Be prepared to be shaken. God's providence is disruptive. Well, for the sake of time, let's try to close our time together. And I want to leave you with just three quick applications. The first is that if you are not a Christian, God's providence should make you very afraid. Remember back in verse 1, the elders of the city came trembling to meet Saul and said, do you come in peace? Because if you and I don't have not placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we are not at peace with God. We are under God's judgment. The Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, second, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, God's providence should give you much comfort, much comfort. Even though God hasn't revealed everything, right? It comes progressively, but his providence is revealed enough that we can live by faith in his providence. And his providence is transcendent. You and I can't understand God's providence because his providence is so unlike our thoughts and our plans and what we see. God's sight is transcendent. And thirdly, if you are a Christian, take courage. Take courage because God's providence is spirit-empowering. It's enabling. The Holy Spirit indwells now mightily within you, right? Since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit actually lives in you. You are the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. And God's providence, like King David, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul at the Damascus Road, God's providence will disrupt you. But, but take courage and take heart and rejoice. This roller coaster has a final destination that brings personal salvation, final resurrection, and complete gratification in the presence of our most holy God. Let's pray.